Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Mark Toyer has been crisscrossing the globe for over two decades making big budget ad campaigns. Initially a successful stills photographer based in Brisbane, Australia, Mark embraced the digital camera revolution early on and has become one of the most sought-after commercial film directors and cinematographers in the world. Mark's Jeep commercial for last year's Super Bowl racked up 106 million views online in just three days. He shoots, directs, edits, runs his own production company, and in many cases does his own visual effects. Like many commercial directors, though, Mark wanted to make movies. The usual route for a low-budget indie film is keep it simple, not too many locations, just a few actors, no visual effects, minimise action scenes, and above all, don't risk too much of your own money. Well, I guess like a red rag to a bull, Mark's turned that criteria on its head. He's put $1.6 million of his own money into an incredibly ambitious sci-fi action film shot in Cambodia, Vancouver, New York and Brisbane. Monsters of Man is the name of the movie. A robotics company vying to win a lucrative military contract team up with a corrupt CIA agent to conduct an illegal live field test in the Cambodian jungle. That's how it reads. The trailer's had nearly 2 million views, more than the forthcoming mega-budget Batman sequel. Mark has also opted against traditional distribution routes in favour of self-distribution and a simultaneous global online release. It's a big roll of the dice, and Mark's about to find out tomorrow whether the gamble pays off. The film is released globally online tomorrow. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Mark Toyer. Mark Toyer, lovely to see your face there. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Still a handsome devil. No, no, I'm just putting weight on and, and uh, looking after myself too much. There you go. <laughs> a couple of years at the computer doing the special effects and editing your movie. Um, yeah, well, no, I was do- like you, I'm doing my day job as well of just directing ads and stuff. But, uh, you know, we were doing the, oh, the, the behind, yes. We're literally doing another run of different PR trailers and stuff for our launch next week. So I was literally just bashing around trying to make a different version. Fantastic. Well, I just watched the film, mate, and congratulations. It's an incredible achievement and I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. I'm glad you did. It, it surprised a lot of people, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, it was that, that myth that advertising guys can't do movies, but the reality are we're probably more um, suited for it. <laughs> Yeah, certainly in, in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, um, I want to talk in more detail about that later, but um, I'll start off uh, <laughs> something that came to mind as I was getting uh, ready for this today. A memory popped into my mind of like, okay, when was the first time I heard the name Mark Toyer? And I got the exact location and the whole time and it was actually in Adelaide and I was making some car commercials for Mitsubishi for Y&R Adelaide. And um, I was with the creatives and I was doing this. And anyway, this ad had just come through something else they were working on. And they're like, God, this is just incredible. This bloke up in Queensland. And at that time, Queensland was kind of like the, definitely the poor cousin. It was like Bris Vegas and quality work didn't come out of, you know, Brisbane, Queensland, all of that. It was, you know, yeah, Sydney. It was trashed. It was yeah, trashed. Sydney and Melbourne were pretty, you know, snooty about that. Anyway, there I was in Adelaide and um, I was on a run of car commercials and probably at the top of my game as a commercial director at that time. And then, so this conversation, Mark Toyer, they delivered the ad. This guy's done it for half what you lot are charging and it looks better. And, you know, we're, we're going to do more work up in Queensland. I don't, don't know whether it was half, but it was certainly like so much added value. It was just ridiculous. And 
I just, I kind of looked at it and went, oh my God, it looks so much better than what I was doing. And I'm like, oh shit. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> so you completely disrupted that the business, particularly the automotive, um, high-end automotive advertising business at that time, because you just, you know, you delivered a completely different model with, um, you know, you were shooting it yourself, you were cutting, I don't know if you were at that time, but I think you were cutting it yourself as well. And that this was a time of in high-end advertising commercial production where, you know, there was the odd DP director, but there certainly wasn't, you know, someone doing it all, or not all, but wearing so many hats and delivering, you know, such great quality. So anyway, I laughed and, you know, I did keep doing car commercials here and there for quite some time, but <laughs> the business had been well and truly disrupted. And, uh, you know, hats off to you. you. You trailblazed then and you almost led that revolution where so much commercial work and film work and TV work went to Queensland. So hats off to you for, for that time. And by the look of it, you're doing it again now for feature films. So there you go. Oh, that's very nice of you, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, I was a bit disruptive in those early days. And, you know, one thing I can proudly say is I never under-chopped anyone from a budget point of view because we never really set the budgets. One thing we did at the start, and I'm not sure if that was right or wrong, but we just go, what do you have? And they go, well, we've got this much. And I go, okay. We'd probably never be on the money each time, but I go, well, this is what we can deliver for that. And they go, all right, we'll give you a go. And, uh, yeah, that just took off. But, yeah, because I, I wasn't really brought up in the film and the TBC industry, I just logically put the ads together the way I thought best, you know. like, And from a production value point of view, I think, yeah, knowing all the special effects and um, knowing how to rustle up all these big things and make them happen very quickly and easily and affordably, I didn't really need that big circus. So um, I could effectively put more on screen. But like I said, I wasn't out to, to beat up on everyone. I just thought I'd just do it my way. And and I was very fortunate. The whole, I, got, I literally was getting every car out in town there for a while. And um and then, yeah, and then we just got swooped away overseas. The, the, the rest of the world found out I, I existed and I was gone. I had, hadn't really been back to Australia for the last 10 years until COVID has now got me back on the shores. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, a, it's an amazing story. And, and yeah, that, that's how it looked as well. Having come from a stills background, not that you were the first director to come from stills. There's been other great directors over the, over the years that had, but it certainly was a different trajectory at that time and tell us about transition from stills to making commercials how that happened was it a client just said hey can you shoot moving pictures as well like how, how did that come about yeah it, what is exactly that and i well actually i remember just being in our studio with it was for a client yamaha our yamaha client we were doing a lot of you know stills and everything for them and he came in with a TV commercial uh, that he paid a fortune for, and it was just a bike going around corners, you know, very basic type of TV ad. And he played it for me. He goes, what do you think? Because at the time I was racing motorbikes and I was, you know, I was the bike nut and he knew I was. Uh, so he goes, well, what do you reckon? So he played it uh, on our TV in the studio. And uh, I don't know who did it, but it was boring, right? It was just a, I think the pe people that shot it didn't know motorbikes. They didn't understand motorbikes in it. In it. And it showed, you know, and, um, and I, you know, just curiosity, I thought, well, how much did that cost? You know, and it wasn't much. And he said, oh, it cost me $350,000 or something. And I was like, wow. You know, compared to my stills budgets, I go, that's amazing. And he said, yeah, but I hate the bloody thing, you know. And I said, oh, geez, I'd love to do one for you. And he looked at me and he goes, do you do TV commercials? I went, uh, uh, uh Yeah. Well, I didn't really. I was I was fumbling around with a camera, but I had no idea really how to make a TV commercial. And then anyway, I went out with a camera with a couple of guys, and because I used to know all the race guys, we had proper racing guys on the bikes, and we shot all this stuff and uh, edited it up and we mucked around. And I think so I remember uh, ringing this guy up and said, how do I use one of these cameras? I paid him a carton of beer to teach me how to turn one of these cameras on. And the local um, editing house here at the time, Cutting Edge, um, they helped edit it all together. and. And really, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just pumbling from one room to the next and they were shuffling me around. And then I kept asking silly questions like, you know, how do you do an overlay with moving text? And they go, oh, no, that's sort of impossible. And I said, well, hang on. There's a camera in the corner there and you're filming like text. And he goes, yeah, no, we just we film it and you can 
and it will overlay on the screen. I said, well, what if we move it? And they go, well, no one's really tried that. <laughs> I said, well, let's give it a go, and I'm moving it, and I'm making it out of focus, and then they overlay it. Because at the time, they had one layer, remember? I'm not sure if you know back in those early days. Yeah. And they, these guys had the first digital suite in the country. And next time we had blurry, moving text, but it was just me holding a piece of paper and playing around with the lens. And all of a sudden, we had moving graphics and diagrams. I thought, cripes. I rang up the Yamaha guys and said, bring in all the schematic diagrams. And we shot all sorts of textures and we laid it up. Um, anyway, that, to cut a long story short, we entered that the local uh, advertising awards up here. And I won my, my first ad to me. I won Best Director and Best Cinematographer. And the local ad agencies going, hey, you do ads as well? <laughs> like, well, I was just playing around. They go, well, do this one and do that one. And it was literally 12 months later, I was like not shooting at all. It just went so fast. It was like wildfire. And, and then the next thing they're going, can you shoot 35 mil film? And I said, well, I'm shooting 10-8 film, which is a lot harder than shooting 35 mil motion film. And I said, well, yeah, of course. So Bear learned how to use a 35 mil camera which was super easy. So I reckon it's easier than digital cameras, actually, to be honest. Uh, so once we knew how to load film and off we went, um, it was a lovely journey. <laughs> Amazing, mate. Amazing. Hey, um, I'll show my age, but I've been around so long. I remember to get those moving graphics back in the 80s when I was doing music videos and things. <laughs> we used to put them in the fish tank or underneath the fish tank and move the water and get the moving text to overlay through that way. Yeah, well, I actually did that the other day. So it's not an, it's an old technique still can still be used, right? Yeah, that's right. We circle them around. Mm. Wow, that that's amazing, mate. Um, the audience for this podcast, I guess it's pretty broad. It's not, you know, just industry people. So for people that aren't in the industry, yeah, it's just kind of really interesting that you look like a you know a visionary, and you are in many ways. But it's really interesting to get that insight into how it started. And then you are now certainly one of the leading commercial directors in the world, in demand all over the world. You've directed commercials for the Super Bowl in the US and, you know, which is as big as they get. How much is it for a 30-second slot on the Super Bowl for a commercial, for a car commercial or a 60-second, do you know? Well, not including the ad that you make. I know the time slot, one of our clients said they were dropping I think about $6 million for 30 seconds at one point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's but the- I think that the Super Bowl actually works better online for them now. Like the last Super Bowl ad we did, they go, well, we're not going to put it on the Super Bowl. We're just going to put it on the uh, the online side of the Super Bowl because Super Bowl had this another channel running to the side, right? And uh, the last commercial we did for the bowl reached out to like 100 million people in two days. It was like just went off the chart. So they were getting way more effectiveness from digital commercials, you know, ads on phones and the the online advertising of the Super Bowl is now the king. Yeah, that's not it. so much running it through the TV station. Yeah, that's incredible. But isn't that amazing from how you started, here you are, you know, whether you're spending, I'm guessing the budget might be half a million, a million, two million, three million on to make the commercial for something like the Super Bowl and then they might be spending six or seven million on the airtime to run it for a 30-second spot. Maybe that's not like that now, but just a few years ago it was. So um, that's a lot of money. And a, the same, I <laughs> Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of money and a lot of responsibility on you as the director. So, yeah, it's just really interesting how you've transitioned from, from where you started to that. So hats off to you, mate. Well, thanks, Lee. I appreciate that. Oh, actually, I've got a, a couple of directing friends, uh, other, you know, ad directing friends here in the country, which are um, equally as, as nice as yourself. Uh, but, you know, but in the time when you sort of, you know, you're like fierce competitors that you, you know, they just don't really need you in their life, but, you know, <laughs> taking work from you. Like I said, that's disruption, right? And yeah, I see it now, like, you know, I lost a job, you know, last year to a young kid that had made nothing. He's got like hardly anything on the showreel. I know he had his treatment written by the Moon Unit. You know, he, the producer behind him is really fluffing him up. Um, and he won a commercial off me, and I go, "Well, wow, look at that!" I, he just did to me what I did, you know, twenty years ago. So, um, you know, them's the breaks, right? And it just happens, and you just got to accept it, take it on the chin. You're not like you can't be king forever, or you know, you can't be the guy forever that's going to get all the work. No, no, that's that's right. Well, no, it's sort of been interesting because my brother is Jeff Darling's kind of creative collaborator, gaffer, camera assistant, right hand man. He takes him all over the world on the jobs they do. So, I guess Jeff. 
maybe he was for you as well, but he was the the commercial DP director that we all kind of looked to. And yeah, he was fantastic. It was a real trendsetter in the day. Like you know, he was just doing things that were so beautiful and unique. That's right. You know, I haven't I haven't seen much of Jeff Slipperman of late, but every now and then you see one pop up like the Calibon commercial, and you go, "Wow, that's beautiful." Yeah. And you dig around and go, "Oh, yeah, that's Jeff." So yeah, that's right. He's he's certainly a a craftsman, that's for sure. I I really respected his work in those days. Even now, I'm sure he's still got it. I haven't heard his name of late, but I'm sure he's still around doing great work. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You do the red commercials. You like the poster child for the red cameras, and you're quite, you know gung-ho in your marketing as well to get to the the level you've got globally whereas i guess jeff's sort of shyer and and um being more low-key in in that marketing so you guys have had sort of two different approaches i guess but um certainly world beaters in the business who did you look to when you were first directing commercials was it somebody like jeff or who inspired you jeff he was a real uh image guy right he was really into Beautiful pictures and stuff like that. There's another guy, Ian McKenzie, back in those days, fantastic photographer, director. And I'd go, well, Jeff and McKenzie, I thought, were like the guys that were doing beautiful images. And then there was, um, you know, there was a couple of guys in the early days, that, you know, like David Deneen and I was just trying to pick names in, but they were more story. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And I thought, well, I love the story side of it, but a lot of great stories fall apart if they're not shot well. So I thought, you've got to blend the pair. And I think that's why. I got the nits. I said, well, you know, Jeff and all those guys inspired me from an image point of view. You know, he's a really good storytelling director. did really well on that side. And I go, well, there's got to be a, an in-between, you know what I mean? And I, and I love shooting because I, I only film all my own work because I can. Um, it's not like I'm not, I'm not wanting to use TPs. I'm just very hands-on and I've just always shot everything I've, everything I've directed. I've always shot it. So uh, it's just the way I roll. But, you know, I'm pretty sure there's a good middle ground, you know. But there's some great advertising directors. You know, I really love what Mark Malloy's doing, what um, uh, Davis. Garth uh, Garth Davis. Davis. So Garth and uh, and Malloy, I think, are just really beautiful storytellers too, you know. Yeah. You know, I just just respect uh, other people's work. You've got to give credit where credit's due. You can't, like, run around trying to badmouth. And, that you know, this is what industry can be like it. A lot of people like to trash their competitors, but you shouldn't. You know, you should respect them and what they're doing. You know what I mean? It's, I think that's a big deal because you know, if you start doing that, you start backstabbing people and whatever, it, it comes back and bites you in the ass. I, I won a job years ago. Um, it was for a Golden Circle client here in Queensland, and one of the competitors went into the creative director and just beat up on me and beat up on me and said, "I can't do this," just rubbishing me the whole way. Anyway, the creative director rang me and said, oh, you've got the job. And I go, oh, wow, I can't believe it. He goes, yeah, because the other guy was just being a dick. <laughs> and so him doing that cost him the job, right? Yeah. The, the other director, this producer was representing, should have just shut his mouth. You know, and I, I get so much work in as well. We get, like, so much work coming that it, it's people always go, oh, you can't do it, Mark, and they freak out. Well, who, who do you recommend? So you've got to recommend those guys that are great at their work. So I'm happy to pass it along to people that I know are going to benchmark at that particular thing. So I'm very giving like that. I really like to – I don't ring them up and say, hey, I've sent you a job. <laughs> That's not cool. But you just push it to people, you know, and hopefully they're doing the same to you. But you've got to try and be good. You've got to try and have some sort of scruples, I think. No, I know you have. You and I have had some good chats over the years and you have, in fact, sent some scripts my way. So thanks for that. <laughs> That's right. It's it's the least you can do for for friends, right? That's cool. And how many, I mean, it's been a weird year with COVID. How many scripts, how many boards, how many potential jobs come, you know, through your office? Well, compared to last year, we were getting one or two a day the year before, but now it's like one a week. So it's uh, in that deep part of COVID, you know, between I think March and June, there was nothing. I think we were just all sitting around staring out the window. But uh, I mean, now it's really livening up now, especially from America. They're just sending tons of work. And and there's a lot of really good stuff around Australia now, which I think they've all realised I'm home now. So they're all uh, (laughs) like, I'm starting to get some good work. And we just did a really good piece for Northern Territory Tourism as well. And that was fantastic. It was um, hunkered around up there. It was great. It was like being on holidays. <laughs> I, I love doing tourism ads. It's sort of one of my little pet pet loves. <laughs> yeah, no, you've done some beauties. So 
as far as crew goes, like you shoot, you edit, you direct, I guess you've got a hand in the producing of some of the jobs as well. How many on, a, on an average crew, because big jobs often have big crews, what sort of team do you work and travel with? It, all, it literally all depends on the job. If you're making huge sets and doing big stunts or more explosions, whatever you know, you, you, you tend to end up with crews uh, quite large. But And, again, it depends on what country. So if you go and shoot in India, you're going to end up with 100 people, whether you like it or not. And, you know, you've been there, shot there as well. Um, Indonesia is the same. Um, but if you go to the States as well, like if you end up doing a union job over there, it's um, you'll end up with 100 people on set and, you know, 88 of them are standing around staring at you. But that's that's just the way the world is, right? And I'm not going to break it, you know. But the, the jobs that go through my company, Zoom, I can't stand people standing around all day leaning on a shovel, you know, like council workers. Everyone's got to be an integral part of the shoot and we all do it together. And if you can't do more than one job, then you shouldn't be there, I think. You know, I just I, I do like smaller crews because I move quicker. I do like smaller crews because I can um, uh, get to more locations, you know, because, you know, yourself trying to move 200 or 100 people from location to location, you, you end up shooting a lot less. Uh, so I, I try to be very clever how we manage uh, people and teams and crews. And I like as well that I've got all that spare money left now, so now I can spend it on a better location or a better actor or or whatever, you know, more explosions. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I know, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit more of a let's put money on the screen, not behind the camera type of guy. Yeah, gotcha. Um, look, you seem fairly cruisy, but the speed with which I've heard you work and kind of with a military-style precision and organisation doesn't feel like that just chatting to you. You feel like just really relaxed and really cruisy. Do you go into, you know, kind of military mode when you're shooting or you just get excited and you're just like, okay, let's just pump through this? Yeah, maybe you nailed that. Yeah, maybe I do get a bit excited. I mean, my poor producer, Kerry Grant, she's, um, you know, she's got her hands full because I am moving at a wild rate of knots. Uh, the first ADs that are on our jobs need to be on their A game. I like to make sure that we walk from one set to another or another. I don't want to wait for anything, you know. It's just because I think once you get the creative juices going, you don't want you don't want to lose the flow or the edge of the day. You just want to beat through it, and uh, and it just makes the day so much quicker. I mean, it's I don't know. It's just every like I said, every job's different. It's all about personalities on jobs too. Yeah, and and you sort of you, you know you find grips and lighting guys and. Uh, wardrobe and all these people that you work with over the years and you go, well, that person's really awesome. And you make sure you ring that person right up front. When you know a job's coming here, that person, get them, pencil them in now. Because yeah. if you lose them, you know you're going to be slowed down by the other guy. You know, what I mean? It's about good personalities, people that don't want to give you excuses. I don't like hearing the word no or can't. That's one thing that rattles me on set. You know, hang on, you said it was okay yesterday and now it's not, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work. But look, I am pretty cruisy and I, I only, uh, only, you know, idiots and slow people annoy me. But uh, mostly I'm, I try to stay as calm as a cucumber and I don't like yelling and screaming on set. I like to try and keep things moving pretty smoothly. That's cool. Thanks. Every picture I seem to see, you, you've got a camera in your hand. Do you carry the camera from shot to shot or do you have groups? Because I know you shoot with quite a few cameras on a lot of jobs as well. So, Because that's that time-wasting thing. Right? So instead of having one camera that you've got to use for 10 different jobs, I, I'll just get 10 cameras. And we're lucky enough to have a heap of them ourselves. We own all our own gear. So, you know, if there's one in a helicopter, we'll have it there. If there's one in the, on a tracking vehicle or a Russian arm or whatever, we'll put it in there. I always have a handheld one handy just sitting next to me. Um, this might be one of the bigger lens on a tripod, another one on a Ronin, you know, one of those handheld gimbals. But I just like to go there, and there it is. It's working. There, there. I don't want to muck around watching people stripping cameras and putting them back into things. And I do shoot a lot of multi-camera as well um, if we're doing shoots. People go, why are you shooting so much footage? And I go, that's oh, only digital. It's not like we're 35 mil anymore, right? So I get lots of good coverage and, and I do all my own editing anyway, so it's not annoying anyone but me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did we used to pay for a 400-foot roll of 35mm film? Was it like six or 700 bucks or something? Process. Yeah. So and now… I remember it well because we, we, we spent a million dollars one year on, on film stock and processing. I was like, wow, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah, when digital cameras did come along, I really… 
embrace them because that's a million dollars of, of film and processing. It's a ton of money. Yeah. Yeah, you were definitely one of the, uh, you know, early guys who really embraced the digital cameras and just ran with it and you hooked up with red bought one of the red cameras and uh, i guess became a leader in the whole uptake of digital cameras and digital technology that was a seems like a huge part of your successful action um while a lot of the other guys were still saying no film better and digital is never going to be as good and all the rest of it and then the next minute you were just <laughs> going global at a rate of knots um Tell us about that time and that what you think of film now and that transition at the time. Uh, I think a lot, where a lot of people fail, they trying to get into digital, they started trying to sell digital to their clients when they shouldn't be there. I, I made sure I didn't even talk. They didn't care what I used and I didn't tell them what I was going to use. We did, they just turned up and go, what's that? And I go, oh, that's the thing with a red camera. And they go, oh, shit, that looks kind of weird. Uh, but they, that wasn't why they hired me. They didn't hire me for my what camera I was shooting, they were hiring me for my craft, right? So I noticed a couple of photographers in the early days fell in this big trap. They just keep walking around town selling digital this, digital that, but they weren't selling themselves. They weren't selling their art. They weren't selling their craft. And uh, and that's where they failed, right? They, they were putting so much energy into flogging a tool but not not <laughs> flogging their tool, <laughs> but, but not themselves. You know, they just weren't putting time so for when that happened, um, you know, I was, I was a film purist. I was a film, 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 filming everything. But, yeah, the red cameras did stop me. I, I, we did a test with them. I, I'm not sure if you know Mike Seymour from Sydney there. He had one. I literally put him on a plane. I said, bring your camera up. I'll, I'll check this thing out. And, uh, and we put the file in our big screens in the studio, and I went, oh, wow, this is ridiculous. I mean, it was so much sharper because it was four times the resolution of what we were gathering with 35 mil. Because I was sort of into post-production a bit then already, not as much as I was, I started digging around in those files and I went, hang on, there's a lot in here. And we struggled a bit with a lot of the local post houses. They didn't want to use the files because they had a, a film pipeline. And this file-based pipeline was just killing them. They just didn't want to invest into that. And that sort of caught them out, sadly. But what they invertedly did is they forced me to start doing post in-house. And then once we did that, we really knew how to really dig into those files and we really got into them. So we really got the best on the red cameras really early. And after a while, we were doing our side-by-sides of film and digital and we realised that there was so much more information there as well. So, you know, the depth of field was the same. Everything was the same. And then we did some... Some clients were questioning the whole digital thing, so we did a split side-by-side, and you go, will you tell us which one's film? And they always went for the beautiful, sharp one, right? They go, well, that one. And I go, no, that's the red one. And I go, they were like, oh, no. So, you know, the thing was film's not rubbish and it's not shit, and I still love it to this day. If, you know, if someone rang me and said some big producer wanted to waste a ton of money and said I want to shoot film, I would because there's nothing really wrong with it. It's still a, a great format, but it's just now the digital technology has surpassed it. And you can grade and make digital imagery look like film very easily. Yeah. Yeah, very, it's very not, interesting. Not a big it's not really a talking point for me anymore. It was years ago, but now I just no one even asks. You know, they, they a lot of clients hope that I turn up with a red camera now because they've seen my work, <laughs> you know, with it over the years. If I turn up with something else, they freak out. <laughs> yeah, well, the last time uh, I shot 35mm film on a uh, commercial was, um, actually, I won't say the brand, but, um, yeah, some of the some of the roles came back kind of milky and it just wasn't great. And, you know, we never did get to the bottom of it, whether it was the film or whether it was the processing because not much was going through the processing mm. um, house, but it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth and... That was the that was the last time, and yeah, same thing. Somebody came to me and said, "Hey, <laughs> it's a ton of money going shoot film." I'd go probably go, "Okay, great," but um, yeah, after yeah, that, yeah, I, why not? Why I, not? Yeah, I haven't been in a rush to after that, particularly for cars because the metal the cars just seem to pop more on digital than they do, you know, a bit sharper, pop a bit more than yeah. they did on film. I don't really shoot many car ads these days because I sort of I, I was shooting too many and. Um, it was quite lucrative in them days, but it was getting so boring because, you know, you can only just shoot a three-quarter car running down the road so many times. It was like pouring concrete after a while. 
So I literally forced myself off doing cars for about two or three years. I just said no more car ads. But I had to sort of really get back into the general work of, you know, bank stuff, finance. Yeah. But that was a good decision, actually, because if you pigeonhole yourself in a certain genre, especially in the ad game, because they like to really put you into a little box. But, uh, you know, it was good. I still do car ads, but I only do like probably two or three a year now. I try not to get too stuck in it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, another mm. interesting thing on the digital factor, the movie I made in the late, well, I was about 96, came out in 97, Dust Off the Wings. You've um, watched it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've, you've seen my bare ass surfing in Bondi then. I've seen your bare ass. <laughs> I've seen you kissing him for someone else other than your wife. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my that God. Was a, um, that was a very brave little movie, I think, in those days, yeah. Uh, it was, it definitely was. And uh, sort of digitally speaking, it was it was the first widescreen digital camera that had been released in Australia. It was the first 16.9 digital camera that Sony had made and making ads for a living at the time. And I heard about the camera and I'd been trying to get another feature up that I'd written in the traditional manner. And uh, I heard about this camera and I just called up the guy at Sony and said, hey, I want to shoot a movie on your camera. And he's like, Oh, really? Because because it was at the time where no one wanted to shoot a movie on those cameras, but that's what they were hoping, you know, people would do. And I said... Yeah, but only, uh, only the porno guys were doing that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he, and he literally gave me the camera, a monitor and a tripod for three months. He said, great, go and make a movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we wrote that film literally in eight days just around my apartment and my friend's apartment and just friends and out of work actors or not not yeah not all out of work but just kind of it was an experiment of like okay let's try making a movie on this new widescreen cinema digital camera but you know it was at that time where absolutely no one believed that it was ever going to be a movie so we (laughs) we didn't have to pay location fees we just went down to bondi down to the beach wherever and we just you know shot things and they just thought we were a student crew or a news crew or something so, you know, I managed to pull it off and make it guerrilla style for a very small amount of money. Um, yeah, it was just that interesting moment in time, I guess, at the start of the digital revolution. And I can't help but think of you with the movie you're making now. It's like that next stage in the digital revolution where somebody can self-fund what essentially looks like a big budget Hollywood action, you know, sci-fi special effects flick and you know you've done it for a fraction of the cost so um there you go mate tell us about that you know it wasn't that it was challenging but it wasn't over the top yeah look we we saved a lot of money because i just took the same thinking of the way we do you know because you know yourself you get the ads now people are writing these huge huge scripts and they've got like two dollars fifty right and you're like wow okay so i think over the years being an advertising game it's turned into a bit of a maverick and all. No, everyone does. Every young director does, right? You've got to turn into some sort of guy to figure out how to get the big-looking script accomplished with a small amount of dollars. And uh, and it's been happening so much, you know, for the last 20 years. I mean, you still get your big budget jobs, but there's always them little ones that you want to do, right? Um, so I just took that thinking into it. And there was a lot of people around me going, oh, movies aren't done like that, Mark. You don't do movies like this, Mark. It's not like done like this in the film world, Mark. And I was sick of hearing all that bullshit. And I thought, nah, you know what? I would circle a couple of right people around me to, just to protect me a little bit because I wasn't sure myself. They were putting self-doubt in my head too, you know. But yeah, after the first day of the shoot, I thought I was going to fall asleep. If we worked at this film pace, you know, I turned around to my first idea. I said, we got to amp this up. And he goes, oh, hang on, mate. This isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. <laughs> That's what he said to me. And this is my first idea. I mean, we'll burn ourselves out if we go too fast. And I said, well, the thing is, we're not going fast. And he goes, oh, no, we're, we're going pretty quick. And I said, no, we're not. We're not going fast at all. So I just said, well, let's just load this thing up a bit more. And we got onto a pace which was a little bit fearful for these guys because they'd never worked at this pace before, or if they did, it was for short spat. I just wanted to make sure we still had time with all our actors so the actors could get their performances right. I didn't care about anything else. It was, I was really actor-focused and, you know, robots aside and making it look pretty was relatively easy, I thought. I, I didn't need to worry about that because we got into a great location where you could point the camera in any direction. But, yeah, just making sure the actors had plenty of time. And we shot the movie with four cameras as well. 
And having four cameras, you let the actors become actors, right, like in the theatre. You know, like I, I really love Vespian type actors because they're so on point and they know where to be and that they screw up, they know how to gather themselves and get back into it and they know their lines, they know everything. So what we did is we just made sure that the actors that we had on, some of them were Vespian trained, they all knew their lines and they knew that once we started blocking out scenes, I would allow them some flexibility because we had four cameras on the whole time. But other than that, it was a bit of a scent check. So I thought it was quite relaxing. We got into a pace for me that was a lot slower than ads to do, but it was a, such a lovely pace that um, it was felt like a big holiday. I was like halfway in a movie, as you know, you've done your movie. Halfway, I'm thinking, fuck, this is never going to end. Right? But when I got to the end, I felt so much fit, I could have literally walk straight into another film, right? It was, it was so easy. I, I, I prefer doing movies now compared to ads because ads are just – so rough and tumble, fast, crazy. You've got a lot of opinions coming in, a lot of weird decisions being made. You know, it can get quite chaotic for no great reason. Uh, but the way we sort of produced this film, we just turned it into a bit of a, um, a therapy type thing, just sort of roll along nicely and it was fantastic. My wife called it the holiday. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, really, this is the first person I've ever talked to that who's made a movie that said it was like a holiday. <laughs> Yeah, mine certainly wasn't. I mean, the one I made, we were just, uh, I mean, really, we had no budget. It was a credit card movie. So each day, you know, after we'd finished shooting, I'd be on the phone trying to wrangle up crew for the next day because it was just like, okay, anyone who could come along did so. It was, other than the DP, it was kind of different crew every day. And casting for the next day as performers, actors would drop off. I'd be on the phone that night, you know, going, okay, um, in fact, one of the scenes is my cleaner. I had I couldn't find anyone. And I'm like, well, I know the cleaner's coming tomorrow. Um, call him up. Hey, can you play a um a shop assistant? Oh, I need wow. to go in for I need to go in for this scene and um and buy a suit. Could you? Yeah, and he turned up and did that and, and it was just like and in fact, the only reason I played the lead role in that film was I thought, okay, well, it's a no-budget movie. I won't have to pay myself. I know I'll be there every day. I won't have to go through the agent and deal with availability and all the rest of it. Yeah, it literally came about <laughs> because of that. It wasn't, wasn't written for me. It was actually my wife who said, oh, you should do it. And I'm like, really? You think I could do that? And she said, yeah, yeah, you're, you're perfect for it. You're a natural. And I'm like... At first, I was horrified, and then I was like, okay, I won't have to pay me. I'll be there. And then I was like, okay. So we just shot for the first weekend and kind of thought, all right, we'll have a look at it, see how it works. Then we went, oh, actually, it looks okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we kept going. Yeah, well, there was quite big characters in your film, right? Everyone was really over the top and quite in your face. And you had that sort of smoldering thing going on and um, but I, I thought, yeah, I'll tell you what, Kate really was quite a natural on, on, on the camera. Right? I suppose she was so used to it with all this singing and being quite camera present. She, she was quite the natural actor. I was, I was really quite impressed because I knew it was a rough and tumble film that you'd done. She felt very at ease, I, I thought, when I watched yeah. it. Yeah, she is a total natural. The camera loves her and she's just got that aura, I guess, that really, you know, translated to camera. No, she was definitely the, the earth mother um, <laughs> character in amongst all of the madness. Mm. Um, but certainly, anyway, the point, the reason I was mentioning that was just by the time I got to the end of that, <laughs> I've never been more exhausted. It was a marathon. And then you had it edited, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, um, Peter Whitmore edited it and um, he did an amazing job. But that was at that stage. Obviously, there wasn't digital delivery at that point. And we did a kinney and transferred it back to film. So, I raised private finance. Once we cut the offline mm. digitally, I then raised private finance to pay for the kinney to get it back to 35 mil film. And then it went out went out on about 52 cinemas, oh, um, which, which is a... Pretty decent sized release considering kind of what a lo-fi experimental guerrilla film it was. And, you know, we went to Cannes and, you know, it was just bizarre that, that, <laughs> That's awesome. um, that whole journey, yeah. So tell me, how long did it take you to write the script? How many days did you shoot? Just give us some more info um, technically how that uh, came together. The script, it wasn't really a throw together. We, we spent quite a few months on it. 
I mean, I, I had an idea I sort of made up in my head while I was in Vietnam, of all places. I had a, a guy over there wanted to do a movie with me, and he wanted to fund it and everything. I thought, oh, let's make a movie. So we thought of an idea. We, but he didn't like it. He wanted to do a treasure hunt movie. I wanted to do, you know, an action movie. So anyway, by the time we left, um, I said, oh, I feel like I want to do like a sci-fi movie because I like sci-fi. I like action. I knew he couldn't afford a big star. I said, well, the robots become a draw card in themselves. Everyone likes robots, right? So. I said, that'll be our star. We designed this whole uh, story premise. And I started writing and I went, oh, fuck, I, I, I'm not a screenplay writer. Right I could probably write a script, but a screenplay writer really knows about structure and timing and everything. And, uh, so uh, I was introduced to this writer, Jeff Hand, from the guys that did Blair Witch and Paranormal. They said, well, bring this guy. He's really good at you know structure and story. So I jumped on with him and we really melded really quickly. I just thought, wow, this guy's he's not one of those pretentious writers that just all of a sudden want to play director he would become a real beautiful writer with us and we got together so quickly that uh, our first draft came out and i read it and i went oh man it seems very good straight up you know i've read a lot of movie scripts before then from big studios and i thought well hang on this has come out pretty good for a very first draft you know well let's beat it around a little bit more there's a couple of little holes in that that he noted the second draft came in i went that that's great you know it came in like 110 pages i think and I thought, well, that's great. Um, let's leave it like that for now. I don't really want to do any more to it until I do my location movie. So I, I wanted to shoot the whole movie for real in Cambodia. I didn't want to do any fake Cambodia here in Australia because it was going to cost a fortune. And I did my math over here and I went, well, if I did this movie in Australia, it was going to cost me like $10 million. And I went, I'm not going to spend $10 million bucks. So I started thinking about, all right, where are the cheapest places or the best places I've worked in the world where I could just get away with murder? I don't have to worry about all the rubbish that slows you down, you know, everything. I just do it my way. And I decided I'll go over to either Vietnam or Indonesia and have a look. Uh, then a friend of mine said, no, you said, yeah, go and check out Cambodia. And so I grabbed my son, actually, and I said, well, let's go and check out Cambodia. So we went over there and we found the local gun club and we're mucking around over there and we're went up through the bush where there's a guy called Nick Ray over there, a location guy. There's a lot of uh, locations for the BBC. And he took us all through Cambodia. And all of a sudden, new ideas came in because we found these amazing cliffs and, and amazing caves through big giant cave systems and these amazing villages. So when we, I came back, I started adding these scenes into the script and we ended up with like a 167-page script, which is way too long for a movie, right? Um, and then I started changing the tone of it because I thought, well, now that I've seen it, it's now going to become a lot more real, you know, because I could just envisage the, the real actor running through the real forest, tripping over the real rocks. It's like, let's make this legit. So I had to change the tone of the dialogue a little bit so it was a little bit more realistic. And in doing so, yeah, the, the, the script grew. But I got back and I thought, screw it, I'm just going to do I'm going to shoot the whole 167 pages <laughs> And everyone's going, what are you doing? That's like another movie, right? And I said, yeah, it is. But the thing is, there's so many great scenes here. I know because I've been editing for the last 20 years, I know that action movies or action anything gets eaten up very quickly. Like a one page and a script might equate to like a minute of screen time, right? But when you're shooting action, it might only mean 10 seconds because people are screaming and talking quick and running for their lives and all that. So. It's all very fast. So my 160 pages probably ended up like about 120 in reality. And anyway, we went off and shot it and we cast around Australia and I, I was getting very fussy with the cast, the type of people I wanted in the, in the movie. And for some reason, a lot of the Australian actors were just a little bit over the top for me. So then I thought, we'll hit the state. So we cast over there and there was a bigger talent pool, obviously. And we found some great cast there. And there was one Australian girl actually in LA that was there. So we did get an Australian in the film. But And I wasn't worried about where the actors came from. I was just looking for great actors. And uh, we, you know, we dragged them all over Cambodia and we shot it, I wouldn't say guerrilla guerrilla style, but it was very minimal crew. We shot 45 days, I think, in Cambodia over about two months. And then we shot a little bit in New York. Uh, we had some New York scenes that we had to do. And then we flew to Vancouver and shot a little bit in Vancouver. And we did visual effects stuff here in Australia for a day. But um, that, that's pretty much how it all unfolded. And I did the movie for 20% of what the original cost was. So um, 
yeah, we saved $8 million by not shooting him, which is not a good thing, but the movie wouldn't have happened if I shot it here. We made a very big financial decision to shoot there really just to save it. But in doing so, we ended up with a far better movie because nothing was fake. We shot in real villages, real caves, real everything, so we didn't have to build a single scratch of anything. Everything was lay of the land. And when you, well, you've seen the movie now, so it's all legit. Yeah, it's all in camera except obviously for the robots mm. and the odd explosion and what have you. But, no, it's shot on location. Mm. You know, it, it, it did well. And, like, you know, you could you can get a hotel room over there, a really good one for like $40, $50. You could eat all day and drink beer, like five bucks, $10. Like, you know, the cost of everything just came down substantially. So the budget was around? Two. Under, just under two million. Yeah. That was including post production, which was which blew everyone away. That is absolutely astonishing. I guess a Hollywood film of, of this ilk, sci-fi action shot on location, robots, um, you know, post heavy. I don't know what would it be, eighty million or something. Uh, look, a lot of people say it looks like a fifty, sixty, seventy million dollar film, but I, I don't know. I, See, I think a lot of movies get pumped up a bit so people make a lot more money from the tax offsets and things like that. Yeah. So I understand that's how a lot of producers make their money from the from those grants and everything, but um, I, I couldn't work that way. I just The math wasn't working for us because I wanted the, just the, the value to be on screen, so I couldn't really work that way. Yeah, I guess also often in those films there's a big star getting 15, 20 million. As well. Off, <laughs> yeah. off, off. Yeah. So, uh, wow. Mate, that's... Astonishing feat, and um, in fact, I think you got some good news today, didn't you? You want to tell us about that good news? Didn't you win an audience award at a festival today? I just oh, saw. Oh yeah, on, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, um, social. Yeah, no, that was a bit. <laughs> it was a bit weird that whole thing. I because I, I said I wasn't going to do any festivals or anything. I couldn't be bothered, right? And this guy, this, this lovely guy, Simon Foster, his name was. He just kept ringing me and ringing me. He wanted the movie in there because he loved the trailer so much. And uh, I said, "Oh, what, what, what's going on?" And he told me, and I said, "Well, you know, is there going to be much press and fanfare around it?" Because you know, we got to both use each other, right? He wanted my movie, obviously, for his festival, you know, to bring some crowds in, and, and I needed some more PR, obviously, to sell our movie. So. He was fantastic. We showed him the movie. He was like, oh, geez, hang on. This is like a real movie. I mean, this is like the, the real deal. So we put it into the festival and, yeah, we got a huge applause. There was people there. I, I wish I could have been there, but they said it, at the end it sort of erupted and and, um, and and then they said we've won it, won the festival, which was nice. And then the the guys in the sitting room on the Herald called up and drilled me and, and uh, he, he sort of tagged me a bit of a crazy man, but hell, right? I, it's just a... Um, Again, we're just having fun with the whole thing. And look, my whole motivation for this movie was I was going to end up doing a movie at some point in my life because so many people have asked me to shoot movies for them already. And once we started talking to a lot of people, it was so much palaver, you know, <laughs> trying to get these movies up. And like, most movies, you know, like, you know, the guy that did Red Dog, the director from Red Dog, he, he said you probably need about 30 movies going at the same time. One might come off. You know, and, and I, I laugh because he's right, right? That's what happens. And now I've got like, I've literally got 30 movies like stacked up from other, you know, from producers around the world now wanting me to do their movies. And uh, really only maybe one will come off. And, and they're like big things. They're like $100 million movies. And you go, how do people even find $100 million? I just think it's incredible. <laughs> but, you know, there's all these producers spinning these plates. But this movie really for us was just a commercial experiment, really. I just wanted to see... If making a movie my way, not the traditional industry way, and is it going to be worth doing? I'm not sure. So, um, you know, making a $20 million, $30 million film for a couple million bucks, unheard of, people don't do it. They would call bullshit, right? But we did it. Because, you know, to recoup your money on, on a $50 million film or a $20 million film, that movie's got to make three to six times its budget just to break even. And I thought, well, you've got to try and make a great movie for the least amount of money so you can at least recoup quickly, you know what I mean, or try and recoup. There's a lot of loss in movies. I think the movie game is quite flawed from the sales perspective, as you know. You know, you can have your movie in a thousand cinemas, but you might, as a filmmaker that made the film, funded, jumped all the hoops for it, you might not make a cent from it. So I'm just trying to figure out by doing it this way, make a good product, go and sell it ourselves, distribute it ourselves, put it on all the platforms, everything, we're going to release it in 65 countries at the same time in December. 
the only partners in our little game here is, you know, Apple and Amazon and Fandango and, you know, all those big T-Bot companies. They take half, obviously, or a little bit less. But that's it. That's the way we're going to do it. So we're just going to promote the hell out of it as much as we can, get it out there, see if my little way works. It may not. It could be a complete disaster, but I just want to go through this channel. But the good thing about this movie, and that's what I recommend to everyone, at least everyone in Hollywood knows, oh, shit, you can actually make a movie and it looks great and he doesn't need much to do it. So all of a sudden I become a bit of a bit of an asset to them, right? And the movie's not even released yet and there's so much producer buzz going on out there at the moment that I'm, I'm getting like scripts thrusted at me constantly at the moment. And so that means even if I don't make money from the movie itself, I'll probably make my money back through director fees doing other people's movies forevermore. But uh, who knows? It's all fun and games. No, you're, you're basically doing in the feature world what you did in the high-end advertising world 20 years ago. I so. so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know yet, no, but I'll definitely fill you in. Yeah. Okay. No, it, I mean, it is an experiment and I'm very interested to see how it plays out as well. Mm. I mean, just from the trailer, how many hits have you had on the trailer? How many views on YouTube and how does that compare to a Hollywood, you know, Tent pole movie. Uh, honestly, they're too hard to count because it spiders out so fast. But just looking at the major websites, just YouTube alone, that have you know people sort of steal the movie from your website and they put it on theirs, right? Which is fine. I'm quite happy to <laughs> steal away, right? But um, yeah. the trailer per se. But I think for YouTube, we've, someone said it's about ten million now. But you've got to go through a lot of websites, a lot of. YouTube things. And there's a lot over in like Russia and Italy and stuff that we don't even see. And because I've got a lot of friends over there, they go, oh, it's all over the internet over here in Europe. And I go, well, give me the link. And then you're watching this Spanish person talking about your movie and you go, wow, I can't even get it here. You know, if I I search for it, I can't even find that link. So it's amazing how much gets buried in in the digital noise out there, you know. Yeah. So how many views does a Hollywood blockbuster with a big star have uh, of its trailer at this point? Put it this way. On one of the big YouTube channels, I can't remember the name of it now, we are beating Batman at the moment. We've got 1.7, 1.8 million views on this one particular YouTube site. And the Batman was launched two days after me, and they've got uh, 1.2 million, which is astonishing. I don't know how that happened by any stretch. But, you know, Batman's stronger in other channels. So I'm not saying my movie for, for <laughs> is a tenfold by any means. Um, but we are very, very happy uh, with what's going on. And especially with our social media side, that went nuts as well. So, well, then, you know, when we launched, everything we've got so far has been organic but we're going to have to spend quite a bit of money getting it out there as well. So we've got this whole payment system. We've done all our testing and checked all the algorithms. We know who our fan base are now. So we've, we're going to be quite targeted on stuff. So we'll see how it all goes. It's a big world and a big noisy world, and you've got to cut through all that mess. Yeah. What sort of budget are you prepared to spend on the marketing? And is it also your money? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not going to say anything. It's, um Okay. It might be a little bit embarrassing, but I think, you know, being in the advertising games, you know, for the last 20 years, you know the value of advertising and you can't try and sell a movie and not tell anyone about it. So you've got to make sure people are aware, especially now. Like, you know, I could spend, I'm not going to spend a million bucks on on advertising by any stretch, but if you spend a million dollars on social media advertising and you're some guy that lives in Florida and done a little movie of me getting it, that movie is going to be hard. You know, it's, 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 you've got to spend a ton of money to get reach. So um, I, that's where I think realistically I think the movie's strong enough, but for me to get it out to the planet to make sure everyone knows it exists, it's going to be tough. And that's where those big tent yeah. poles, they will spend almost the same amount on advertising as what they do on making the movie. They just know that it's so noisy out there. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So tell me about the decision to distribute yourself. Did you speak to the distributors and did you have offers? What did they offer you and why didn't you go the traditional distribution route? Um, I'm going to say we, I'm not going to say we wasted a year, but because it was very informative, but we had company CAA, which I think you're aware of. It's yep. Commercial Arts of America. And, and that, they were a big, strong, big company. And uh, and they, they really did try to get it out there into the marketplace. And they did. They, they rang up all the big players and they showed them the movie. But, you know, obviously they 
the distributors were going, well, it hasn't got Brad Pitt in it, it hasn't this, you know, it, I didn't stack up from a, yeah. a star yeah. point of view. Uh, people really liked the movie, and we got lots of lots of little offers, and and we got a couple of seven figure offers as well, uh, which you know I'm not going to say the name of the company, but but you know we we got got offers enough to probably pay the movie off, but I wasn't really in the game to break even. I looked at their offer and I go, well, what are these guys actually doing? And the way the deal structures were was it was going to probably take me a year or two to get paid. And with, like if you're dealing with Netflix, for instance, it was going to take almost three years to get paid. And I go, well, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, you've got our product. It's out there in the world. Everyone's watching it. Just pay the whole lot up front and do your thing. Uh, but they weren't. It was They were literally putting it out, then making money, and then giving it back to you. And that's where the fatal mistake was. You know, if they just put the money on the table, I probably would have just went, eh, take, thanks, bye. I'll send you another one in 12 months' time, right? But because it was taking so long for that payment, they weren't really prepared to put their, any skin in the game. I uh, decided that, well, if they're just going to put it on all the video on demand, you know, the VOD platforms around the world, well, I can technically do that myself, right? And from a marketing point of view, I was looking at all these companies and how they marketed and how much they spent on small films like ours. And I go, well, I can do that as well. And I could probably do it better because I'm, like I said, I've been in this game for so long. I know how to do advertising. Right? So um, I just thought, well, oh, COVID happened. <laughs> and then I thought, well, you know, my wife and I are sitting there doing nothing. Let's do it ourselves. And um, so we just took over that. So uh, now people are ringing up trying to give us bigger offers and all that sort of stuff, but it, it's all too late. It's just done. We're on this little train ride and we'll see the train ride out and we'll just see if we come out with any change in our pockets or not. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if it's a failure, it's a failure. It doesn't matter. It won't be long-term because, like I said, I've already got a lot of scripts coming in that will probably pay them with my fees for this movie anyway now. So if anything, I've just made something really cool for my showreel. I don't think it's a great loss. <laughs> Mate, it's an incredible story, really. It's gutsy, good on you for having a crack and throwing yourself off the ledge and making a movie, <laughs> and let alone self-distributing at the same time. So, Well, I'll tell you what, it's very interesting, Lee. Like, what I've learned in the last two years about sales is just incredible. How sales agents make their money, how distributors make their money, how people buy from around the world you know we've got territories around the world ringing us you know emailing us every second day trying to buy the movie off us you know it's really interesting how it all works and i understand how it works and i know how hard it is for a distributor to sell that movie that they are representing you know i mean so it's not like distributors are trying to rip off filmmakers distributors are just trying to sell that movie and trying to get some money so it's not like they're making a ton of money off you it's just they're probably not sharing as much with you as what they should be but but it is a tough game for the distributors. It's a tough game for sales agents. Um, it's a tough game for me as well. But it's a really interesting study. And I don't think I'm going to run around bagging distributors and sales agents because I know what they're trying to achieve. There's a lot of spinning plates out there. And I think, you know, I think it's a tough game for everyone in the movie game at the moment. And I just made a conscious effort. I go, well, I'm only going to do a movie when we can afford it. It's not going to break me. I don't need to sell a house over. I don't need to worry about it. If I drop some money, then we're not going to die over it. Who cares? Do you know what I mean? I've worked hard to be in that position to be able to achieve that. So it's a very calculated risk. We will come out of it this way and we'll come out of that way, but we're we're probably not going to go down from it. So uh, I'd, I'd never put myself in a risky position. Good on you, mate. Well, look, um, very impressive. Hats off to you, as I said earlier. And um, the film comes out uh, the day after this podcast goes to air. So good luck, mate. I hope it's a massive global hit and um, see you on the other side. Yeah. Well, look, I know it won't be. I doubt it will be, <laughs> but um, but it'll be uh, – It'll be. It's, it's a nice journey. It's kind of fun, actually. And, and that's and I want to share that fun with everyone. I sort of want, want everyone to know, especially young filmmakers wanting to do a movie. This is what we did. These are what these guys did. Make your own mind. You know what I mean? Very inspiring, mate. So thanks for having the chat today and um, hope to see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Lee. All right. Good on you, mate. See you soon. See you, buddy. Thanks for joining me. Isn't it fascinating to see what challenges humans will tackle to make them feel alive and, I guess, you know, get them out of bed each day? 
Hats off to Mark for this incredibly ambitious creative project. I hope the film's a big success for him. Head to monstersofman.movie to watch the trailer. The film is released tomorrow globally online. That's Tuesday the 12th of December 2020. If you're enjoying the podcasts, you know the drill. Subscribe, rate, review and tell your friends, please. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review and rate. Thanks, guys. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production. <laughs>